0: So I want you to imagine that all of you have committed a crime, all right? And you committed a crime with a friend, right? Uh, Maybe it's kind of like one of those friends where he's a friend you commit a crime with, but he might not be a friend that you would like, you know, trust your wallet with. You know, who knows, you know? But this is kind of your partner in crime. And you have committed a crime and you got caught, right? You got caught, and they took both of you in handcuffs, and they put you in these rooms called interrogation rooms, right? You're in one room, and your buddy is in another. This is a classic thing they do. They're gonna separate you, see if your stories match, see if they can get one of you to confess. So if we look at the next slide here, uh, this is a very standard prosecution tactic when you have been caught committing a crime all right they'll offer you three options the d.a. or maybe the lead detective or a police officer or the prosecutor him or herself will come in and say hey look option a if you confess that the two of you committed the crime and the other guy denies it we'll let you go free and we'll send him to jail for up to five years so if you If you confess that the two of you did it, and he says you didn't, you go free, he gets the full five. All right? Option B, if you both deny the crime, well, we do have enough evidence to put both of you away for about two years. Option C, but if both of you confess to the crime, then you'll both get four-year sentences. All right? I want you to imagine for yourself, you did actually do the crime. I know nobody in here would ever break the law, you know. So we're, we're just doing a little role play here, all right? How many of you, you'd risk it for option A? Just go ahead and raise your hand. You'd risk it for option A, right? Nobody's going for option A. Why? Option A, you go free. Thank you, Tim. That's right. That's right. Tim's rolling on me. He's going for option A. All right, we got one. We got Tim. We'll do option A, all right? <laughs> How many of you got option B, right? You're both going to deny it, which, by the way, I think happens in all 18 and under, right? You know, so are <laughs> both deny the crime, right? How many of you would go with option B? Nobody would go with option B? How? Okay, we got two over here with option B, all right? Both, you got, that's, you got a good lawyer. <laughs> all right. How many of you would go with option C? Obviously, I think, can you please raise your hand? Boy, you guys are a little, you know, a little... <laughs> Little, little relaxed in the chair today, you know. All right. Fact of the matter is, statistically, 88% of the time, prosecutors will tell you that people choose option C. Why? Because the legal system stacks the deck that you would actually choose a harsher sentence because statistically, we fear betrayal statistically we just don't trust what the other person is going to say so this person in this interrogation room doesn't trust what his partner is going to say his partner doesn't trust what he's going to say so 88% of the time both confess and take the 4 years rather than risking the 5 or shooting for the 2 but what's really funny is if both were confident each other's cooperation and loyalty they would have both gotten a lighter sentence. today we're talking about betrayal about loyalty specifically we're going to be talking about the apostle Peter and how Peter sold Jesus out the night that he was arrested if you turn to Luke chapter 22 beginning in verse 31 uh, if you have a Bible or, or a tablet head there if not It will be on the screen and uh, we'll begin like this they are the setting of this is they are at the last supper right they're eating jesus's final meal as a free man before the crucifixion and uh, they're all they're all talking they're all talking about who's going to be great in jesus's kingdom they're talking about what did judas go to do and they're all they're all having this kind of conversation you know what's going on and uh Finally, you know, they get to the subject of loyalty to Jesus, and and Peter's kind of stepping out like, you know what, I'm I'm with you, Jesus. I'm going all the way. And Jesus just throws this out there. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Now, we often quote the scripture saying Satan has asked to sift Peter. Peter as wheat but satan has he's he's trying to sift you know what it means to sift what does sifting mean any of you got some farming experience sift to sift is to what it is to it's to separate right separate devil's tactic is the same old same old since adam and eve you know divide and conquer right so Satan is asking permission from God. These 12 men that you think are going to change the world, I want to divide them. I want to attack them and bring them into division. And if you know the history and the story, for the next few days it's going to work. They're all going to run for their lives. But Peter gets it a little worse. And so Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Peter replied, Lord, I am ready to go to prison and to death with you. Now, for many ways, in many ways, Jesus, I mean, Peter is probably one of the most human of all of Jesus' followers. He's kind of that friend that you have that constantly gets in trouble because he blurts out the stuff that everybody is thinking but doesn't have the guts to say. I have one of those friends. His name is Tim Harris. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> kind of. But anyway, uh, <laughs> he's the man with the foot-shaped mouth, you know. Tim Harris. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, he didn't know. Now, Peter didn't know that 30 years later, he actually would go to prison and go to death for Jesus. But he was not ready that night. So Jesus answered and said, I tell you, Peter, before the crow Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you even know me. Now, here's here's something we always have to consider. Jesus knew in advance what Peter was going to do. Jesus knew in advance that he was going to deny even knowing him. Most of us if we knew somebody was going to be betraying us like that, we would not be having dinner with them that night, don't you think? They would not be invited to the dinner table. You're going to betray me? Get away from me. This has got to be the odd thing about God. He knows all the various dumb, stupid, and rebellious things we might do against him. And yet he still keeps inviting us to the table over and over and over and over. That's what makes Jesus so special. That's what makes Jesus so amazing. Even though he knew Peter was going to deny him, he chose him anyway. Now, Jesus prays. Notice in Jesus' prayer, he does not pray for the temptation to be removed. I would have thought that would have been the first prayer, you know. Peter, I'm going to pray that you don't get tempted. No, nope. Jesus actually did not pray that. Because the temptation was for Peter, not against him. Jesus prayed that he would not lose his faith altogether. See, there's a difference. We can stumble and fall and struggle with sin and still have faith. We can stumble and fall and struggle with sin and Satan is attacking the very thing that links us to God, which is our faith. So he's saying, I'm praying. You're going to be tempted. I'm praying that your faith doesn't fail and that when it's all over, you come and strengthen your brothers. Well, we know the end of the story, right? Peter, in fact, does deny Jesus around a charcoal fire as they were leading Jesus out from the court of the Sanhedrin. He was going to be led toward the um, portico of Pilate, a place where they could talk and not violate their Jewish rules. And as he was being transported, prisoner of transport, Jesus and Peter's eyes locked as Peter is denying Jesus for the third time. So Peter blows it. The last gaze that Jesus and Peter have is him betraying him out of fear for his own life. Now, what happens? Jesus is crucified and a day goes by and then all of a sudden on Sunday, Jesus rises from the dead. So on the third day, how did Jesus deal with Peter? What did Jesus do as a result of Peter's failure? Well, the first thing he did was, number one, he sent for him. He sent for him. He sent for them. When the women arrived at the tomb early on Sunday morning, an angel announced the good news and instructed them to go and tell the disciples. Hey, the women came early because they were going to prepare Jesus' body because the next day was the Sabbath. They couldn't do it on Friday, so they came back on Sunday to do it. And Jesus is gone. Jesus is gone from the tomb, I should say. And he says, and the angels say, go tell his disciples and Peter. So the angel, everybody, they're all singling out Peter. Why? Because Peter is in a bad place right now. Peter's failure had separated him from the other disciples. In fact, he was probably saying to himself, you know, what am I now? Am I a a disciple or am I a traitor? Maybe I should just go back to who I was. Maybe this Jesus thing doesn't work. Maybe there's nothing to it. The great thing was, was that Jesus was far better at finding Peter than Peter was at getting lost. First, he sent for him. Second, he met with him. He met with him. Where did Peter go after he denied Christ? We don't know. The Bible does not tell us. But I think we can say this. When we've made a huge mistake, the last thing we want to do is be around people. Amen. Uh, especially the ones who know us the best and love us the most. Sin sifts. It separates us from God and people and isolates us so that the enemy can convince us that having made such a mistake, nobody would want to be around you again. You're so horrible, Peter. Nobody wants to be around you. That's why Jesus sent for him and met with him because he wanted to reassure Peter, you are in a dark lonely place right now you're feeling terrible about yourself i still pursue you in fact i've risen the whole universe has dawned in a new creation this is going to reverberate throughout all eternity and the very first person i am seeking is you the very last friend to betray me While we don't know where Peter was, Jesus knew exactly where he was. Twice the New Testament mentions that this private meeting took place. Once in Luke 24, where (coughs) the the men on the road to Emmaus come back and say, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says he was raised according to the third day in the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. I am especially heartened that Jesus met with Peter before the rest of the disciples. What amazing grace that is that God doesn't publicly humiliate us. I, I hate public humiliation. I don't always see the point in it. Sometimes when I read about it in Scripture, sometimes when I, or not just Scripture, but I mean history or literature, you know, It always seems to satisfy something on the person punishing rather than the punisher, or the punishee. And I love the fact that Jesus isn't going to embarrass Peter in front of everybody. He says, go tell Peter. I'm coming for him. We're going to meet because I need to talk to him before we do and show him that I'm alive. That's amazing grace. And then the third thing is he changed him. John finished changing Peter in John 21. In John 21, Peter and the disciples have obeyed Jesus. They've gone back to Galilee, and they're fishing. And while they're fishing, a man from the shore says, hey, throw your net on the other side. That's kind of Jesus' calling card, you know. When he tells you to throw your net on the other side, and you get a whole net full of fish, you know that's Jesus, right? So that's what happens. (laughs) Peter says, it's Jesus. And he forest gumps it right off the boat, you know, jumps right off the boat, and just starts swimming to the shore to see Jesus again. And they have breakfast together, and after they'd finished, Jesus asks Peter three times, Do you truly love me? More than these?" And Peter answers, You know I love you. And with each answer Peter gives, Jesus reinstates him into his call and into his ministry. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. That's a metaphor for become the apostle and the pastor that I've called you to be. Now, why did Jesus ask Peter three times, do you love me? Very simple, because Peter denied him three times. Why did he do this publicly at breakfast? Because Peter denied him publicly, but he didn't humiliate him. I love that Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Rather than, are you sorry for what you did? Do you want me to tell everybody what you did? Do you want me to recount the story? Now that's probably something I would do. Thank God I'm not Jesus. Y'all would be miserable. (laughs) Jesus just opens up, Peter, do you love me? Because Jesus knew he did. He had a moment of fear. He had a moment of weakness. But Jesus knew, three hours from now, you're going to deny me. 30 years from now, you won't. And you won't just be facing a procurator named Pontius Pilate. You'll be facing the Roman Emperor himself. And with that question, Peter is changed. I believe he's changed forever that morning at that breakfast. And what did it center on? Did it center on guilt? Did it center on fear? None of those. It centered on love. It always come back, comes back to love. True change spiritually always comes back to God's love for us and our love for Him. Amen? So if you have a discussion sheet, go ahead and flip it real quick and I'll give you these three things, four things very quickly. First thing is this. Third day grace applies to everybody. I talked to somebody this week who tried to convince me that God did things for the apostles that don't necessarily apply to us. Don't believe it. That's frog fur, all right? That does not compute, does not jive. If God did it for Peter, he'd do it for you. Like Peter, he sends for you, he meets with you, and he changes you. The church is not a collection of perfect people called to judge the world. The church is a collection of broken people who have discovered God's grace, who tell other people how they can discover God's grace. That's what the church is. The world takes broken things and throws them away. God takes broken people and patches them back up. Many of you have probably seen the famous slap, right? Will Smith slap Chris somebody rock and uh (laughs) yeah yeah no no we haven't seen it (laughs) and and it's you know and there's lots of arguments for and against yes it's violence oh he was defending his wife a whole bunch of things but what i love is that this picture here is that same night and that's not chris rock in the picture that's the man that you're looking at the back of his name is denzel washington he's another famous actor who's a believer and he prayed with Will Smith that night. And Will Smith was beginning to feel it like I made a big mistake. And uh, Denzel Washington said this and I thought it was perfect. He said, hey, God's just reminding you, Will, you're not as, hard as, you're not as hot as you think you are. And neither am I. Third day grace applies to everybody, amen. <laughs> Number two. Third day grace reminds us that failure isn't fully from us. Satan had to ask permission to sift Peter as wheat. Some of you love that. Some of you hate it. Some days I like it. Some days I don't like it. I don't like that God will give the enemy permission to do anything with me. There's a part of me I don't like that. Then there's another part of me that likes that he has to ask and he's not just free to do whatever he wants. So I'm like, I'm 50-50 on it. It will be one of our first conversations in heaven. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, if you're wondering if God is in control, he most definitely is. This is God's universe. This is God's planet. We are not left to the whim or fate of anything. However, what did Satan do with Peter that he got permission to do? He filled him with fear. Peter denied Jesus because that day, Peter didn't want to get crucified too so he filled him with fear that's like Satan's atomic bomb is fear now please don't ever say the devil made me do it the devil doesn't make you do anything but you can say you know I did it but I had help I had help Peter never forgot the words of Jesus that fateful night in fact many years later he would write a letter and he would say be controlled and alert for your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour out of 1 Peter 5. The first step to living in third day grace is to resist the help that the enemy is trying to give you. When I was younger and in college, they had a discipleship thing that happened. I, can't, I went to a Christian college and they had a discipleship group. I can't remember what it, even what it was called at this point. Methetes or something like that. And So me and a few guys from my floor, we signed up for it. And they brought in this speaker. And the speaker at that time, I won't say his name because you'd know his name and you'll, but at that time the speak I, he's no longer alive, I don't think, but he was older. Just leave it at that. he was vintage uh and and uh so he was talking and he was talking and and the whole time he's talking about struggling with temptation with women, and it was it was like nine of us guys there, you know. And so, and I, you know, it's kind of awkward, but I'm, go, you know, listening through this speech. Finally, at the end, he's taking questions. And one of the guys to, my, to the right of me is like, hey, I'm just curious. At what age did all that stop for you, you know? Because we're like, I think I was 19 at the time. Most of the rest of them were in their early 20s. So he's kind of saying, at what age does that all phase out? You know, 40, 50, you know, at some point, you know, you're just not tempted anymore. He goes, oh, I understand your question. He goes, well, I can tell you this. 72 is not it. <laughs> and when he said it, you know, when he said it, I looked at the other guys and there was this look of, oh, they're all bummed out. Like, I got to deal with these temptations the rest of my life, you know. One guy quit the program. He said, that's it, I'm out of here. I'm not going to be the guy who fails and everybody pities. And so he was just gone, you know, and, and that dropped him. But it just, just reminds us there's always going to be that constant pressure to be sifted away from God sifted away from the body number three third day grace heals our self-sufficiency yes God sees our self-sufficiency as something to be healed because never again would Peter brag like he did that night never again would he presume to be better than his brothers never again would he be so cocky and self-confident Sometimes by falling flat on our faces, we are forced to admit that we need God. And if failure strips away that prideful self-confidence, then failure is ultimately a gift from God. I want to be honest and personal with you for a moment. One time, I had a moment where I spoke my mind. As a pastor, you don't have the luxury to speak angrily. Right or wrong, people just won't forgive you for it. Now, the reasons I was angry don't matter, nor would I want to repeat them here. Nor do I want to repeat what I said to them. The fact is, I said some hurtful things to people who did not deserve to be treated like that. And in the days that followed, I paid dearly (laughs) for losing my cool. You know, I think sometimes as we grow, grow in Christ and grow in maturity, we think, oh, I've grown so much I would never do that, right? I'll, I'll never do that. I'll always keep my cool. I'll never come unglued or I'll... I'll never steal, or I'll never cheat, or I'll never whatever. We get to this place where we think we're above certain things. And I think that was my problem. You know, I was so so good at being nice, I didn't think I could be mean. <laughs> but all of a sudden, there I was. I mean, we don't say it out loud, but in our hearts we think, I'm not that guy, I'm not like that. And then it happens, you know. Kind of like a snake coiled in the grass. It just lurches out. Well, now I can never say I don't have a temper. Now I admit it. Now I acknowledge it. And now I pray every day for God's help to stop that snake from biting. But you can't stay stuck in those failures either. Life is a lot like a river. It's always moving forward. You can't go back. The back is the past. It's already over. It happened. It's done. You can't stay stuck in the present. I've met many people who try. They're just an emotional park going nowhere fast. You got to keep moving forward. I love that phrase, but by the grace of God, do I live forward? Do I take another step, live another day? But by the grace of God. One step at a time. And then finally, number four, third day grace declares failure is not your destiny. God uses our failures as a means to an end, but He never uses our failures as an end to ourselves. Failures, they don't mean that you've blown everything. Just means that you still got some lessons to learn, which means you'll probably have certain failures to your dying breath. (laughs) Doesn't mean that you're a permanent loser. Just means, like Denzel Washington said, you're not as hot as you thought you were. It doesn't mean that you should give up. Failures are often a way of God saying, I want to show you the next step. And then finally, Failures don't mean that God has abandoned you. God never abandons you. It might just mean that the path you are on, God has a better plan. God has a better path. So he lets you see that that one isn't going to pan out so that he can get you back on this one. A few years ago, there was a distraught, angry person. He was angry at the Lord. He wasn't a mentally ill person. He was angry at God, angry at Jesus, and angry at the church in Italy. And so he went into one of the churches that has a very famous statue. Anybody know what that statue is? What it's called? No. The Pieta? I think I'm saying that right. The Pieta. Michelangelo, 600 years ago, 500, however long ago, he carved that. What you see, he carved that. Brilliant sculpture. Well, this man was so mad at Jesus, he snuck in a hammer and then jumped over what was only just a roped fence and began to smash this sculpture. They heard him saying, I hate you, God, I hate you, God, I hate you, God, as he was smashing the sculpture. Finally, they subdue him, they get the hammer, they drag him off. But the sculpture was ruined. There was debate, because it's very expensive to restore a structure. Should we keep the statue or junk it? Sell it off piece by piece to people. We could probably get a lot of money that way. Hey, I got a piece of the pieta. But the church intervened and said, no, we're going to restore this. We're in the business of restoration. So they hired from all over the world sculptures to come in and work piece by piece. But here's the beauty. Something that Michelangelo did not have available to him in the Renaissance period, right? The 16th century. 500 years later, we have these clear glazes that you can put over the statue now that makes it almost impossible To beat down with a hammer. It's almost as hard as steel. And it's clear. Like a varnish or a glue. That they didn't have 500 years ago, but we have today. So when they did it, they rebuilt the statue piece by piece. And then they put this wonderful glaze over it. And then they tested it, believe it or not. They had someone try to take a hammer to it. and then man nearly broke his hand trying to hammer a sculpture that could no longer be broken. That's God's plan for us. People come in or we do it to ourselves and just smash us to pieces. But God doesn't throw us away. God's not like the world. He doesn't throw broken junk away. He fixes it up, patches it up, puts a nice glaze over, and makes you stronger than you were before. Because that's the heart of God. He's a father that has no favorites. If you're alive and you're human, He loves you just as much as He loves me, as He loves the next person. And He'll do that just for you. Patch you back up, put you together. Put that glaze over you and restore you even better than before. Amen. Bow your heads, close your eyes, worship team, come on forward. Before we close our service today, I'd like to make a very simple invitation. Could we uh, take the house lights down real quick? For all of you who have some failure in your relationship or devotion to God. And maybe that failure is unbelief. When we die and face God and realize, wow, he's really real. That, the unbelief is going to be categorized as a failure. For all of us who may have had those moments like Peter, we just felt alone, separated from God, separated from people. Maybe you feel like that right now. Or maybe some of you this morning, you're rejoicing that God is not a humiliator. That he will go and find you in your loneliness and meet with just you. Send for you, meet with you, and change you. That's God. That's Jesus. That's who we celebrate. That's who we serve. That's what I believe with all my heart. He is alive and he is in this room. If You come next Sunday, I'm going to explain it to you how Jesus is here is in this room. You might be like, how is Pastor Tom going to explain that? You got to come next Sunday to hear. I will explain it to you how Jesus is in this room. You're going to want to hear it. But until then and before then, pray this with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I love you. You know I do. I will feed the sheep. I will feed the lambs. And I will trust in you. With all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength, I make you my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with the Holy Spirit, that I may worship you and praise you, my good, good Father. In Jesus' name, amen.